Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 122. This week, we talk with Katrina Owen about refactoring. Is coding style still a thing? Open APIs or be doomed, says Visa. And I didn't want my iPhone 7, but I'll take a free one. This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Infragistics, providing tools and solutions to accelerate design, development, insights, and collaboration for any organization. This week we have Katrina Owen, Ruby and Go developer, amazing speaker, that's my opinion, GitHubber, molecular biologist, and therapeutic refactor. That is an epic intro. How's it going? <laughs> Pretty well. How are you? <laughs> good, good, good. So Carl, what's going on here? What'd you screw up now? So <laughs> for once, I didn't screw this up. So oh, okay. uh, for those of you who want to know a little bit more into the insides of the show, every week we give out the Infragistics license. What I do behind the scenes is I wait for you guys to send me your email address and then I send your name and email address to Infragistics. Well, I heard a ton of people kind of throughout the summers like, hey, we didn't get it. What's taking so long? So periodically I would kind of poke Infragistics mm-hmm. uh, and I haven't heard anything. So I kind of like decided last week to... Uh, use the MS dev show account, email accounts to email him. And it find and we find out that uh, my email address was going straight to their trash bins. <laughs> so once we found this out, I think a ton of you got your licenses all at once last week. I heard about a bunch of people in very short succession. Wow. So we're glad that you guys are getting your license. If you still haven't gotten yours, uh, send your email address, either DM us at MS dev show on Twitter or send it to feedback at msdevshow.com. We will make sure you get your license. Oh, wow. They probably, they were probably like cursing her name. Yeah. (laughs) So sorry, sorry, everybody, I guess. Okay. This, this week, the Infragistics Ultimate License winner. For real. For real is Alex Shacherbik. And I hope I didn't murder your name, but uh, his uh, feedback was about our self-driving car dilemma. And he had got a, kind of an interesting response. And he says, one of the interesting dilemmas in self-driving driving cars is not the market for the ethical cars, but for a black market for unethical cars, mm-hmm. uh, where people who disagree with the programs would find a way to patch it and ensure, ensure that they always will live in case the car might prioritize their uh, their death. Yeah. And uh, there is a question of security on self-driving cars. They are autonomous and always connected. Internet of wheeled things thus can be hacked and weaponized. Uh, self-driving, self-charging fleet of aggressive vehicles for anonymous warfare. I just <laughs> that love that paragraph. It's like a, a real world, like physical DDoS. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Not, if you read good. the books, uh, 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 Damon and Freedom TM by That's Daniel Suarez. That's what me think of. I was just and thinking of that. Yeah. That, that topic comes up. So if you haven't read those books, I'm not giving anything away. Read them. They're awesome. Yeah. And to continue, it's an interesting point in time when developers, engineers, and security experts should step back a bit and think about Asimov's laws and start to implement them in hardware and software. Good meta. We live in a country where sci-fi books we read as kids are becoming real. We just uh, are used to it and are not very amazed anymore. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Alexi. And if you would like to get mentioned on the show and win an Infragistics Ultimate License, potentially like Alexi did, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com, comment on Facebook, YouTube, or Stitcher. We really like those five-star iTunes reviews. 
Yeah. And, and what was funny was, you know, we had, uh, I asked for people to, to send in their, their opinion if I was right. And uh, by the way, we had multiple emails. You forgot to mention that, Carl, saying that I was correct. Yeah. Everybody agreed with Jason. I, I still. <laughs> I'm not going to rub it in, though, Carl. That's all right. There's plenty of times where I win. So. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. Uh, very cool. So let's get into the news. Uh, so one thing that I guess we have to talk about is the, is the iPhone seven. And I, I think, you know, this probably isn't the show where we, we, uh, talk about it too much, but it's probably just worth mentioning. Um, so I don't know how you wanted to approach this Carl, but, um, you know, uh, as everybody knows, uh, they're removing a, a critical component, which is the, uh, which is the headphone jack. And actually what was kind of funny is I, I just looked at the, iFixit fix it tear down this morning and you know, what's in the, it, you know, what's in the place there, right? It's like this little tube for the sound. Like it, it, there's, there's, em- there's essentially empty space there. And some, I'm sure somebody argue with me cause it's not the right shape or whatever, but, uh, they literally like didn't need the space this time around. They really didn't. Uh, but anyway, they're doing it. They're doing it nonetheless. I think to me, the most uh, important thing that they did with this, and, and there wasn't really much that was important that they had to do, yeah. but they removed that 16 gig model. Yeah. That's just getting too small on today's phones. Yep, absolutely. Uh, I got lots of stuff on my phone, including MS Dev Show podcast, right, everybody? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, the the they're bigger or the uh, yeah more memory on there. Yep, nice, Carl. And um, waterproof, which is which is always nice. I, they were already fairly waterproof, but now it's uh, it's sort of official. IP67 rated, so you can be 3.2 feet for 30 minutes. Uh, even though they still have they in the inside, they still have a water sensor, and they're still not covered by warranty. Uh, if it ends up having water damage. So, you know, read into that what you might. Um, so they don't really stand behind that. One of the coolest things about this though, is the, is the processor. So they, I mean, it's just a significantly upgraded processor. And I, I don't think many people have talked about this, but this is just a beast of a processor. It's faster than their, than the giant iPad pro. Um, it is, it is just super fast. So it's quad core two uh, really fast cores and then two power saving cores. So you'll, uh, you know, on average, you're going to get, uh, you know, uh, noticeably more battery life, but then you're also going to have that power when you need it, which is, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, so here's the deal. I, I had a, you know, I should say I have, and I, I have an iPhone six plus and I did not plan on getting the seven. I was like, haha, I'm skipping this one. Uh, and then all the midget carriers, they, I think it's out of desperation to lock people in. They're basically offering these things for free. Uh, so if you guys haven't heard about this, uh, whatever your carry is, if it's AT&T, T-Mobile, Verizon, they basically are giving them to you for free. So uh, what you end up doing so I, you know, I went into AT and T, and they they signed you up for their they signed you up for their V next program, which is basically an installment plan. And uh, if you give that, if you hand over your six or six S or whichever models, uh, they will they will pay the payments for you um, for the six hundred and fifty dollar version. So I I will be getting one, although it's going to take a month for me to get mine. My wife's is showing up today, but. Um, yeah, I don't know. I th- I think they're gonna they're gonna do fairly well just because of that. Although I have uh you know ten different pairs of these uh these earpods, so uh, I am disappointed that the headphone jack is gone because now I don't know. I either have to buy like ten adapters or I don't know. I still haven't found my my dream pair of Bluetooth uh, headphones yet. Anything else you guys want to mention on that, Katrina? Do you use an iPhone? Yeah. Or are you Android? Oh, I. I was Android until very, very recently, and one of the security guys at work was like, you know, we'd really prefer it if you used an iPhone. Really? <laughs> yeah. So I went and I got one of the 
really tiny, small, the SE oh, old SE. one with 16 gigs. I don't really use my phone much. Yeah. Well, that yeah, SE, one of though, our, one of our friends actually did that too. They announced the iPhone seven and he immediately went out and got the <laughs> SE. Yep. That's what I did. <laughs> Are they, they're not making like an, a seven SE, are they? I have no idea. When yeah. I went into the shop, I want I I told them explicitly that I wanted the old one, and and they were like, "Yeah, you're. We haven't shipped the new one anyway." And I was like, "Good. Then yeah. We're on the same page here." <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's I I knew that one was uh, significantly less expensive, so that was probably probably a good choice. I just throw my money away on technology. Uh, okay, so we can move past that. Uh, <laughs> is coding style still a thing? And uh, you probably have some comments on this. So, what is this article about, Carl? So, you know, one of, one of the things that we've actually been talking about, you know, on and off throughout the uh, lifetime of the podcast is tabs versus spaces, and I think this kind of fits in too. But it's probably a little bit more important. Is coding style <laughs> you, you uh, very <laughs> very important? And the the point of that this article brings up is. I'll, even though it doesn't make a difference a lot of times because compilers will figure it out, it's how easy it is for us to understand when things have uh, the correct coding style. Mm-hmm. And some languages have very well-defined coding styles, and other ones like SQL are pretty ambiguous and sometimes even have conflicting coding styles. And while I agree that it's important that we write uh, very understandable code, I think that it really kind of, in my opinion, depends. The coding style should change between languages to mm-hmm. match whatever that language is good for. Yeah. So I was wondering what your thoughts were on coding style. You talking to Katrina or me? Yes, both of you. <laughs> Go ahead, Katrina. I Not important, not right? A, like it, oh the code goodness. doesn't matter what it looks like. Yeah, no, whatever you feel like that day. So, <laughs> <laughs> I think that the thing that uh, I think is most important is consistency. So if you're writing Go, use tabs. If you're writing Ruby, use spaces. Mm -hmm. If you're writing uh, SQL, uh, figure out what everyone else in your company, how they want to indent it, um, and just do the same thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I totally agree. Uh, yeah. The only thing I noticed in this article was that uh, he had the wrong name for Uncle Bob Martin. Uh, I actually commented on it. If you look in the comments, he already fixed it. So uh, real time changes there. But uh, yeah, absolutely. I think it. I think it's kind of obvious. And we have to have an episode, Carl, where we don't mention tabs versus spaces because it's kind of getting old now. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we've uh, we've over discussed it. Oh, uh, let's see here. Open APIs or be doomed, says Visa. Yeah, so Visa recently announced that they have uh, around 40 APIs that will cover nearly every payment need on their Visa developer platform. And they go on to mention that not only are they uh, feel that it's very important for their business to succeed, but internally, they're actually com- uh, teams competing to see how quickly they can get their APIs to be made public for Visa. Okay. So I think this is really cool. I, I, th- I think that it's uh, partially a response to uh, businesses like Stripe who are just killing it and making very simple payment APIs. But I think it's uh, a lesson for a lot of other enterprises who feel that they need to hold things very closely to succeed. A lot of times you can open up and find out that you have more success on uh, when you are uh, 
make things widely available as well. Yeah. You know, my opinion open by default, and then you need a reason to not be open. I mean, I, that's just the way it needs to be. I'm just not quite sure what APIs they actually have. I mean, cause the reality is like, if I, if I want to accept a payment, like I'm not going to integrate with visa, right. I'm going to integrate with uh, like Stripe or something like that. Right. So that I can support MasterCard. Cause I'm guessing visa doesn't have a MasterCard API, right? <laughs> so, I, I don't exactly know, but yeah. at the same time, um, I guess if they make it easier for the third party payment solutions, that's a win for everybody. Then it flows, it trickles, trickles through. Okay, cool. Um, switching costs in software development. So I, I remember when I was uh, a very young software developer, I was being expl- uh, explained that we should be able to write our code. So when we have a database that's uh, we're getting data out of that's uh, based on like SQL Server mm-hmm. that you could replace it with maybe something that hits Oracle <laughs> very quickly. Yep. And you, you you always argue is like, when are we going to do that? Well, I, I saw this article uh, talking about switching costs and they were just saying that they were using AWS for the cloud and they found that there was this third party uh, tool that would make their management of AWS way simpler. Mm-hmm. So they just started building on it. It was pretty cheap. It had a fixed cost. And they were able to just write tons and tons of scripts against it. Well, eventually that service that they were using to automate just jacked up their prices astronomically. Yeah. And they were at a point where they had so much built in and it was done in a way that they couldn't turn to anything else. They had to sit there and eat the costs. And they said, you know, it's it was enough that if they were a very small business, they would be wondering if they could even make their paychecks. Right, right. Yeah. So, choose choose you know, your choose your friends wisely. So we have to remember how easy it is, um, you know, or how, what options we're locking ourselves into or or we're leaving open when we start using some of these services and ways to develop around that mm-hmm. in order to prevent a situation like this. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the, the funny thing is, though, there, there is the whole like SQL versus Oracle thing, and, and that comes up all the time. But the, the reality is like 99% of the companies that like built for both only used one of them. But, uh, it, yeah. yeah. And that's why I said, I think this is a lot better example than some of those SQL ones were. Yeah. And and then the other thing is like this, this sort of... Um, this looks bad for for kind of the the different cloud services, but I guess what what I would say to this effect is I I have to deal with this all the time where um, I work with partners that are like you know we really don't want to get locked into Azure we want to be able to switch over to AWS and then you know once again it's it's the whole SQL versus Oracle thing again they they write to the least common denominator and they never see like major value out of it it's like we're just going to use virtual machines well you're not going to see a whole lot of benefit on the cloud like that's really difficult to do there's some strategies where you might be able to do that and be able to move around. But the thing is, you know, again, choose your friends wisely. Um, I, this, this fear that like Azure is going to overnight double all the prices and, and AWS does not like, how would that happen? Like what, what is the logical yeah. sequence of events that could possibly happen where that would actually be the case in this case here, this was a small company. And I think they probably just said, Hey, you know, we're either going to go out of business or we need to like, you know, 10 X our, our prices. The one that was providing the service is the one I'm talking about. They did that. And, and they probably, um, you know, they probably killed themselves at that point because they're, uh, milking the, the small handful of customers that they do have. And it's probably going to be harder for them to acquire customers. So I don't know. It's just, it's a calculated decision. Um, but, but I, I think we need to be grounded in, in the data that we actually use. We can't just say we might want to switch from X to Y. I mean, the, you 
okay, what are X and what are Y, I would say. Any other comments, uh, Carl, Katrina? Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad we're, we're in agreement. And then I think we, we, there was one thing we, we talked about cutting Carl, but I think we should talk about it real quick is this, uh, portable monitor. I actually saw one of these about a, a month ago. So this is a, it's Asus makes it, it's called a Zen screen portable monitor. It's a 15.6 inch 1080p screen that you plug into U, uh, USB. Ideally you plug it in USB C because it's just one cable and it powers it and gets the video sig- or basically gets your video signal. Um, this thing is awesome. Like it's super thin. A, a guy that I work with actually bought one. And I saw it in person. I was like, wow, this is amazing. So if you ever need like a second monitor while traveling, uh, this thing is actually pretty cool. I've seen this thing in person. Have you, have you used one, Carl? No, this just came, came out. It was announced at IFA and that was just a few weeks ago. Yeah. And I, I saw this and just with the stats that it's, you know, like you said, it's, you can power it and drive it over uh, one USB connection. It's IPS, which is a really good technology. Uh, and it's eight millimeters thin, so you can just throw it in your in your backpack and not really even notice it. How did so? I'm really interested. Yeah. I am really interested uh, about this, and uh, if I could afford it, um, I would love to get one. Yeah, he must have ordered this on day one, but he showed it to me. So the the disadvantage is that if you don't have USB C. Uh, then you have to plug in, I believe you just plug in two USB cables, like one for power and then one for the, for like the data connection. Cause it, it sucks up like half an amp from each USB port. So you couldn't use a splitter or something. I mean, if that's what anybody's thinking, but, um, you know, for, for traveling on the go, it comes with a nice case and it sort of folds. It's like that, that origami iPad case where you, uh, you know, you sort of fold it and it, and the monitor sits up and this thing, what, what was the cost on it, Carl? I did not, I, it's not have expensive a link through the ASUS. Um, I don't know exactly what it is, but it, yeah, from what I did here, it wasn't here. Uh, astronomical. Yeah. I want to say it was like one fifty or less. I think it was even less than that. Oh, well, this wow. says, uh, this says $300. There's no release date. Was this, I don't, I'm, I'm so confused. Cause when this was published on August 31st, yeah, Man. that's when it, he must have, got, yeah, he must have got this thing like the day it came out unless, unless there's like a different model that's almost identical. Cause this is the same size resolution, everything and exactly the same uh, specs. So maybe there is more than one. So we'll have to, we'll have to look at that, but uh, it was no $300. I know that that's probably like the MSRP or something tax title and license are extra. Uh, okay. So let's, uh, let's talk to Katrina cause she's got all sorts of cool stuff going on. So, um, I've been watching some of your presentations, Katrina, and and what's great is you have just a wealth of resources out there on your site. And I know we'll mention at the end, but what is, what is the address for your website? Trinks. Uh, Trinks. It's K-Y-T-R-I-N-Y-X. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So if you go out there, there's like a speaking section and it's just wonderful because you have a lot of really cool videos out there. And, um, I'm really poor at picking, uh, you know, topics at conferences and like, man, yours just sucked me in. Like you see the title and you just have to watch all of them. So, um, and then, and then they, they deliver, (laughs) which is, which is really impressive. So one that we specifically were going to talk about today was around refactoring and around your passion uh, on refactoring. And you had some really good videos out there where you just took this horrible, horrible code that, um, you know, I don't know who wrote it, but 
you know, hopefully they're not listening because they're just terrible. I, I think it was Jason. <laughs> yeah. You took some code that I wrote. Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, d- 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 yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe if I was uh, programming Ruby all of a sudden, that's what I would write. But uh, you actually made it look awesome. Um, and, and you did it in such a way, like step by step. It was, it was just a really cool video. So I want to make sure everybody checks that out. But I guess where I wanted to start was, you know, like what, what got you into refactoring? What made you so passionate about refactoring? The first thing about refactoring is that uh, it made me feel sane in an mm-hmm. insane world. But when, <laughs> when everything was out of control, the only thing that would bring me back to feeling centered was refactoring. So I'd come in early to work and just kind of refactor for my own sake. Yeah. And then it hooked me in even deeper because as I did this, I started learning a lot about readability, about communication, about design, about architecture. Uh, and so it became more and more interesting for its own sake, not just for the sort of therapeutic v- value of uh, being able to wrap a problem into a smaller, more understandable box. Mm-hmm. And then sharing it with others, obviously. Which is great. It's a lot of fun. The whole the, <laughs> so the first time I tried to show people or do a talk about refactoring, the version one, I was like, I'm going to have ten examples, and I'm going to show you the before and the after, and it's going to be really cool. And I showed it to someone, and they were like, Now I feel <laughs> stupid, and you look smart. And I was like, That's not very cool. So yeah, yeah, which is kind of frustrating. I actually had that. I did that recently. I did it. I did a presentation and it was just like an internal thing to, to some people. I was trying to do some training and I, I was, I was actually doing like the easiest thing. And they're just like, they're like, I, we just don't get it. And you look really smart. And I'm like, that, that wasn't what I was trying to do. <laughs> I'm like trying to teach you this. So yeah. that's how I ended up doing the very step-by-step uh, approach when I'm doing no, it's, it's, examples. It's, it was, it's a, it's great. Yeah. I really, it was great. Yeah, I really want people to understand what the decision point is and how they can make that decision and yeah. and really see that no matter how much you've refactored if you've done it for years and years and years you still don't really know where it's going to go you only know what the next step is or you, yeah. you can find out what the next step is very cool so you know i know a lot of people when you talk about refactoring they'll kind of be like yes i just refactored some code but maybe they couldn't explain what refactoring is can you give us a little bit of a definition on what we can, you know, how we can describe refactoring? So the official definition is goes something like this. Uh, refactoring is changing the structure of code without changing its behavior. So it's rearranging code uh, without affecting the outcome, which means that in order to prove that that is true, you actually need to do it quite systematically and with uh, a wall at your back. Otherwise, things are going to break and you won't know it. So you need a good test suite and there, the original book about refactoring has a number of recipes, and they're named, and they are very step-by-step. Uh, they're described, um, first you do this, and then you run your tests, and then you do that, and then you run your tests, and then you do this, and you run your tests. And so refactoring is not uh, really, I moved stuff around until it made me feel better. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a fairly structured process. So uh, a lot of what you've you've mentioned there really sounds like unit testing and refactoring really go hand in hand, especially when you make a practice of doing so. Um, what What is the relationship that you see between the two? So in order to be able to move quickly and move safely, uh, you need the tests. Otherwise, you will have to move very, very carefully and do manual tests be- between each change. Mm-hmm. And that just takes forever. And then uh, it also gets very tedious. 
uh, and scary if the, the code is hard to understand or if it's in critical parts of the code base. Okay. So what I tend to do is if I need to, if I need to refactor and I probably have a a different definition of refactor, uh, yours is better. Uh, but (laughs) (laughs) if I, if I, if I need to refactor a piece of code, like what I would do is I would actually, if, if there's no tests, I would actually create a test suite to verify my assertions, um, to say like, okay, this is what I think it's doing. And, having all the test passes saying, yep, you're correct. It's doing what you think it's supposed to do, Um, which isn't absolute, but that that's sort of where I would start. And then I would start making changes and the whole time, make sure I'm not breaking that original functionality. Is that, is that kind of the approach that you would, um, that you would advocate? Yes, very much. So that's exactly the approach that that I use. Okay. Michael feathers, who was mentioned in the code style uh, article in the news section Mm -hmm. today, he wrote a book called Working Effectively with Legacy Code. And, okay. and he calls that whole process of going from no tests to, to verification tests. Um, he, he calls them those tests, um, sorry, characterization, characterization tests. Oh, okay. Um, oh, so he's actually like called them something. Okay, yeah. Cool. So it has a name. Uh, and and it, he has a lot of techniques uh, and tips and tricks on how do you get tests around something that is untested? Because right. often the the untested code is is harder to test simply because nobody ever talk, thought about the that part of the code base in smaller modules or yep. um how yeah how, how would you how would you call it if you're not like running everything at the same time? Yep, it's kind of a symptom of of you know a, a problem. Yeah. You know the fact that there's no test probably is just a is just a symptom of a larger disease. <laughs> yeah, and usually usually it's like oh I'm ju- I just want to like grab a hold of this little thing, but you pull yeah. it and everything else comes along with it. Yep, kind of a terrible feeling. Yeah, so why should I refactor? One in one of your presentations, you 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 fixed a bug, and then you were like. You know, I could have just been done, and and not, nobody would have been none the wiser. Everybody would have, you know, you would have been the hero, like you fixed the bug, but you, you know, you just had to cause trouble, yeah. and and make the code better. So, like, you know, <laughs> why why should I do the same thing? So I think there are a number of reasons to refactor. Let's talk about why you shouldn't refactor first. Sure. So the sure. The, the first reason to not refactor is if it, if it's in a part of the code base that never changes, then you're going to pay this extra cost to make the code readable, but nobody's ever going to have to read it because it's never going to change again. So I think that in that case, uh, refactoring is kind of pointless. Um, I also think that you shouldn't... There, there, People come up to me and they say, so how do I convince my manager that we need to drop everything and refactor for the next three months? Um, <laughs> and I think that the answer to that is you shouldn't. Uh, you should never really drop everything and just refactor. The refactoring should always be in relation to changes that we are making, um, changes in requirements that are coming down uh, the pipeline. And you know that you're, you're going to need to support uh, some type of change along some axis. And the way that the code is right now, it makes it hard to make that change. If you make it, it you basically end up, I don't know, adding lots and lots and lots of conditionals everywhere, the whole shotgun approach to, to making a change. And I think in those cases, we know there's a change that's going to, that, that we need to make. We understand this change. And in order to make it um, cheaper and less um, risky to make that change, uh, that's the time to refactor. 
Yeah. Actually, you know, it's funny. I don't know if you're having any flashbacks, Carl, of when we worked together, but we, we had a lot of these discussions and it wasn't even, it wasn't there. There's, we could probably broaden it. It wasn't just refactoring. It was like, Hey, we want to make these changes that will make this, make it easier for us to work with this code base. Like it wasn't even that we wanted to make like this thing more readable, but for some reason they, they wanted to just like streamline the process. And um, we always had this this struggle between like on one side it was hey we want to have assigned story points to this and we like we want to have like a big effort to like make you know make this whole thing better and I was on the other side and I'm like if it's if you can make it better like it it'll just come through like that'll just increase our velocity you know so to your point like this you know they were saying we want to spend three months refactoring and I was always like no like actually spend your three months on it but like spend it spend it like in smaller increments yeah. and add it to the, you know, don't, don't go refactor something unless you're touching it, for example, um, and kind of spreading it out that way. And it, part of it isn't just a high, it's not like a, it almost sounds like you're, you're, um, you know, I don't know, stealing money from the company, like, you know, uh, fractions of a penny <laughs> or something like, like office space. Right. But, but that's really not what we mean. It really is like whenever you're working, whenever you have to work on a particular piece, that's probably like your, you know, when, when the patient is on their, uh, uh, you know, op- their, their, their chest is open and you're performing surgery. Like that's the best time, right. To let's remove that tumor while we're, you know, putting a new heart in. Right. Yeah. That, that's kind of what we're saying. Yeah. It's just yeah. part of the regular hygiene, your day to day. Uh, yeah. It's, 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 it's part of, I guess, you know, the, the work of being a professional developer also yeah. means, um, making sure that you are doing the 10 minutes here and the 15 minutes there to keep things under control and clean. And you really shouldn't even have to tell your manager, right? Oh, it's just like, part it, of doing your job. Yeah, that's that's kind of my thinking. What what were you going to say, Carl? And I think part of it too is what the discussion that you brought up when we were working together is a lot of the times when we were developing like, hey, we should go do this. It was preparing for features that we weren't ready to implement yet. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of those things that to the point that we've kind of been making, you know, when, we, when we're ready to make that feature and implement that, that's when we should make the change that would make it easier to to implement that feature, mm-hmm. not three months ahead of time because yeah. we think we might need it because a lot of the times business requirements change and we might not need that feature anymore. Yeah. yeah. And I was always fine with like pad your estimates then like this feature, like we're opening up the patient and we're going to, we're going to spend extra time fixing these other things because while we're in there. And so just pad your estimate and that, that just becomes the new cost of that feature. And then we can evaluate it, whether it's maybe we just leave it be then maybe, you know, the cost of us going in there and doing all this stuff is too high. So we just say, well, you know what, let's just skip this feature then. Um, and that, and that's a real cost, right? If there's, if you have to go, if, if there's like, you know, the, the piece of code that you showed Katrina in your presentation, which was just horrible, like, you know, you might look at that and say, Listen, if we want to add this one simple feature, like <laughs> it's going to take a long time because I'm I'm working with a squirrely piece of code, so maybe we should just not touch it, you know, to your point earlier. <laughs> yeah, if if it becomes important to the business, then then that's an investment that's important to make, but re- yeah. if it really is just to feel better at the end of the day, um it's probably no, not worth paying that cost. Infragistics Ultimate UX and UI tools and enterprise mobility solutions SharePlus and Report Plus enable high-performance apps on any device, faster data insights, simplified collaboration, and market-leading security, all backed by comprehensive support. With Infragistics Ultimate UX and UI Development Toolkit, you can ensure 
mission-critical applications delivering a superior user experience on the desktop, web, and native device environments for iOS and Android. With the latest BI tools, wow your users with dashboards providing the data insights that they need when and where they need it, all at a low total cost of ownership. Try it today. Download a free trial at Infragistics.com and follow them for the latest updates in UX and UI development, reporting, and collaboration at Infragistics on Twitter. And remember, each week, if we pick your comment on the show, you will get a free copy of Infragistics Ultimate UX and UI Toolset. So you had, in one of your presentations, you had uh, your top 10, ref- I shouldn't say, it wasn't, you didn't present it as top 10 refactoring rules. Uh, in fact, you had a phrase, well, I can't remember what it was. You remember what it was? Oh my God, this is, this is my talk from four years ago. It was like something chunk or something. I can't remember. <laughs> oh, what, junk. Know? It's junk, uh, not chunk. It was junk. It's yeah. code junk. So this is inspired yeah. by the idea of chart junk, which is, um, oh, what is his name? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm like, you know, I can't, making you bring up old memories. Oh, I'm, I'll, I'll go find, I'll go find the correct reference to this, but there is yeah. a, um, there is this idea of when you're drawing visual representations of data, people tend to put in all of these, you know, marks in their chart that are just noise. They are just getting in the way of actually seeing what that data represents. And I feel like we, we sometimes do this in code as well. We have just out of habit, we, we have boilerplate that we use that we no longer need and all of these things go in there and so in ruby this is rampant especially because in ruby you can you there's never just one way to do something and so mm-hmm. um people often end up doing a lot more than they need and you can start peeling away layers of j- things that are basically just noise yeah <laughs> yeah it was really cool do you do you remember what some of those were I'm kind of, I know I'm putting you on the spot here, so Let's I don't see. expect you to remember. Yeah, it is. Four, four years ago, you made a list. What was on the list? <laughs> so, totally, totally a reasonable question. What, totally reasonable. <laughs> well, one thing that I've seen, and it's it's more common with newer developers, but they will say, if Boolean expression return true, else return oh, false, or something yeah. like that. And then, yeah, yeah. And, and it's getting people used to the fact that you can return the expression directly or, um, what was the other one? A lot of people will um, add a lot, like they'll they'll do verbose versions of of enumerations and things in Ruby, where you yeah. can. There are shortcuts that are very readable and very idiomatic, and nobody's going to be. It's not being clever to use the the shorter versions of them. Things like that. So one thing that I saw a developer do, and you'll have to let me know if you've ever seen this, because this totally threw me off. He would always put the the boolean first. Have you ever seen somebody who does that? Like if false equals logged in. Have you ever seen that? <laughs> I saw that in I wonder if it was C where so I asked someone about this and they were like, Oh well, yeah, because if you forget to put on the second equal sign, then it's an assignment. And you're actually mutating the the variable. Uh, and, oh, that's hilarious! Yeah. So there's actually a reason to do it. I wonder, but yeah. but there's also but but fighting against that is the is just the readability. Then you know, like we talked about earlier, you know, I I, I prefer tabs over spaces, but I do spaces. 
Cause I'm, you know, I have to, yeah. like, <laughs> I'm not going to be that guy just because of that. I'm not going to like, you know, put a stake in the ground over that, yeah. you know, <laughs> like I'm the tabs guy, no matter what. Yeah. I've, so. I've actually, so in go it's tabs in Ruby, it's spaces, like we were saying yeah, earlier. And I've yeah. actually come across people who are starting to learn go and they're like, no, I don't use tabs. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> sorry, but if yeah, you're it's not that, a, <laughs> it's not assigned to the person. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's the code. Yeah. <laughs> you don't, it's, you don't have to buy the tabs or spaces shirt or like get a tattoo on your forehead. <laughs> the conditions thing actually has a name. I think it's called um, Yoda conditions when you put the false oh. false first and the variable after. Well, see, now I, I learned something new. Um, I think I think I've heard that before. But yeah, I mean, it just all of us were like, what is what is wrong with this person? Yeah, yeah sometimes it's <laughs> just worth risking assigning that variable. Somebody's going to catch it in a code review. It's going to be fine. Yeah, that's a good idea. Okay, so everybody listening, make sure you always put the 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 boolean value first, the the fault true or false uh from from this point forward. So, is there any other uh, refactoring tips or comments that you'd like to make before we move on? Oh, yes, let's see. Tips and comments <laughs> for refactoring. Take smaller steps. So, okay. the the thing that I see a lot of people do is they start out really they they have a plan and then they start going down that plan. And it turns out they didn't really understand the code as well as they thought. And so things are breaking. And then they're like, oh, I know how to fix this. And, and then it turns out they don't. So things are breaking more. And then you go down this path of like, well, I think I know how to fix this. I just need to get there. And then hours later, you might you get there. Digging yourself in deeper. Yeah, like usually over and over. Get reset yeah. hard. And so, yeah. so when things start breaking, my recommendation is to back out until you're back to a green test suite. And then find a smaller step. Um, and there almost always is a smaller step. Oh, what if I just put that in place first? If the code still compiles, nothing is using it. And then I can do a one, you know, a one swap change and everything is green the whole time. Yeah. yeah. Should just start a company around like, you know, send us your code base. We'll just, we won't change anything other than we'll just make it readable I, and send it back to you and charge like ridiculous amounts of money for that. I would do that. I would totally do that. <laughs> People so, often like they, they, they complain as though it's this terrible thing to work with legacy. Co- I don't know. I enjoy it. It's yeah. It's always an adventure. Yeah, that's very cool. So it sounds like you're an advocate of solid because you know that what you said there reminded me a lot of like the single responsibility principle. So kind of re- reminding ourselves to get back to what some of these good coding basics are. The solid principles are interesting. They I have a hard time with some of them. I understand, I feel like I can understand single responsibility, except when I go back to the sources and start reading about it, it wasn't really about responsibilities. Yeah, there you go. That's a good one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a great uh, one. But yeah. but uh, there's, they all feel like they, sh- because it's an acronym, it feels like every principle should be, you know, independent at the same level of abstraction. And then it's like, well, single responsibility is one thing, but then you have this big old math thing that is the um, the Liskov principle, which seems like it's a completely different type of principle. And and so I I have a hard time wrapping my head around solid. So so maybe so, maybe it sounds like it's readability first, solid second. Yeah, maybe. I so I think readability readability is is huge, especially if there yeah. are more people mm-hmm. involved. I, I feel like that's very important. And then I feel like this idea of single responsibility helps not so much with readability, but with 
understandability. So the way that you chunk things so that you don't have to remember all of the thousands of details all at once by chunking them into a coherent, cohesive little packages of, of logic, you can think about them at, at a higher level of abstraction. Yep. I think, I think that's a useful thing. And then one of these principles is about um, decoupling dependencies, which means that your fat tests are going to be faster because they're not loading everything that they don't need. And it means that you also don't have to load the context of everything into your brain all at once. Um, so I think that all of the solid, solid principles are are useful, but they don't really tell you how to get there. They, they just sort of in retrospect, mm-hmm. does this does this follow solid? Yeah, it seems like it. Okay, I guess your code must be pretty good then. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I've, I always try to follow solid and solid. And then I'm like, you know, it just, it's, it's just, it's going to make more logical sense to, to, you know, break this, maybe bend this rule a little bit. Um, because otherwise, yeah, what ends up happening is people look at my code and like, what the heck? And I actually looked at a code base like that recently. Like it was perfection and I just, nobody could tell what was going on. (laughs) I see that. I see that in Ruby code. So a lot of Rubyists really like small methods and I, I, I appreciate that except when all the small methods are all over the place and they are not really entire ideas. It's like all these little fragments and I can't fit the fragments into a picture. And so I don't know what I'm looking at. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I find one of the uh, keys for me that in the code that I write that let me know when to break things up is when I just have an excessive amount of conditional statements. Uh, I just wrote some code the other day. It probably had one method had seven or eight conditional statements and they were all nested. And by the time I was done, I couldn't even really follow it anymore. (laughs) <laughs> so then I started breaking out some of those conditionals into into their own methods. And that's when it just really became readable and understandable, like you mentioned. Yeah, mm-hmm. conditionals are like the, the biggest red flag because the only thing you're going to get when you have conditionals is more conditionals. It's inevitable. <laughs> mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, go ahead, Carl. Uh, I was going to trans- uh, transition on to the next topic. Um so you use a Dvorak keyboard? I do. I, 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 <laughs> I, saw I think you're the first person that I've met that actually uses a Dvorak keyboard. So I met... How did that come about? Uh, so before I started programming, I was uh, working as a transcriptionist. I was encoding medical records um, as a job. And that was a lot of typing. And I started getting um, injuries. Um, and so I started just kind of looking at, well, what could I do to not hurt so much all the time. And it turned out the Dwarf keyboard was um, a good, a good uh, solution to this because you're the, the home they've, there are two things that really help you stay on the home row a lot more. Like there's mm-hmm. just less moving around. Um, and the other thing is that they made sure that for the English language, you're switching back and forth between right and left in, um, in a nice way. So often you have these little, these little licks where it's like, boom, 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 instead of all, all with one hand. So they're, they just made things smoother. Of course, I had to learn how to type on the Dwarak first, which was not smooth. <laughs> so, so how long have... did that take? Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I think it took, it was two weeks of utter pain of like, I don't even know what I'm going to type next. Could you type before that? So yeah. did you go from, okay. Yeah, I was, wow. I was, a, I was a quick typist. I was, I mean, I was a secretary for several years yeah. <laughs> trying to pay my way through <laughs> I'm college. just wondering if it's harder, like once you know how to type to, to type on a Dvorak then. So now I can't type on a regular keyboard. <laughs> I can't go back. Wow. So, so when you're like sitting behind somebody and you get like, you're just like 
move. Nope. Like can't do you, it. You, then you just look really stupid because so you're just sitting on the wrong keys. Yeah. Or, or people will like grab my keyboard and type just, Oh, I'll, let me just take you to the right website. And yeah, it's yeah. like comma, comma, comma dot. And it's not, it's not great. <laughs> I can't imagine. Cause like I've used like a, like a UK keyboard, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and I'll be like, Oh, I'll take care of that. And then there's like one character that's different. And it is, of course, that's what I type all what I don't even remember what it is like a colon or something. Right. And it's just, uh, it's just horrible. So I can't imagine all the keys being like that. So I have a couple questions then on that. So the, on your laptop, did you actually buy like, yeah, I know you can get like the sticker sets. Uh, did you like, nah. okay. So it looks like, it looks like a regular keyboard, looks like then. a regular keyboard. And then, okay. Yeah. You type it. What I really wanted was the keyboard that doesn't have anything on it. No markings at all. Yeah. That, yeah. Just, that seems cool. So, so you don't care if somebody watches you type in your password. No. Also, I have really long passphrases. So yeah. people don't. Yeah. No, I'm just thinking like, I'm just trying, I'm thinking through like this whole thing. Yeah. Like that's a, that's a benefit, right? You can be like, yeah, totally look at my password. Good luck. Yeah. You know, no. they don't know Dvorak. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's not like they're going to like, con- they'd have to memorize every character. Then they'd have to go, you know, use like a lookup table and figure out what was being typed there. Security through obscurity. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then the symbols are all in the same, are, are they all in the same places? They all, they are how, well, most, some of them, <laughs> the numeric keys <laughs> with the symbols are all in the right places, except okay. my keyboard. I bought my computer in Norway, so they are actually not. Um, in the- <laughs> so you're just like always on super hard mode. Yeah. Basically. Well, it, it's only hard <laughs> mode the first few months. <laughs> You'd, Once you get over that, yeah, you get used yeah. to anything. The really That's the worst cool. part is when when I'm like, oh, I need to type on your computer, so I'm just going to swap it over to Dvorak. You yeah. don't mind, right? And then you you forget to swap <laughs> it back, and then the computer goes to sleep, and they can't get back in because their password uh, is not in Dvorak. <laughs> that is that is hilarious. This is awesome because I've heard of like these mythical Dvorak people. Um, I've never talked to one though. I've met a few. So. Well, of yeah. course, now we bond. Over, well, yeah, right. We- well, I know because like I'm colorblind and like, you know, of course, I find all the colorblind people. And of course, when I'm driving, I always see people with the same car as me. And, you know, like it's that that whole phenomenon, yeah. of course. So I probably I probably know Dvorak people. They just, you know, they haven't told me. Um, so do you recommend that like somebody learn the Dvorak keyboard? If they're if they haven't learned to touch type already, I would say consider it. Um, it is a pain because now you can't go to any old internet cafe when you're out traveling and be comfortable typing and, uh, and the whole thing of swapping back and forth, like pair programming, you, the, the only way I found to pair program comfortably, uh, when one of us is Dvorak and one of us is not, is to use a little, like the key logger that will, that you can put, um, between your keyboard and your, and your computer that you, you type on a QWERTY keyboard and, um, and the logger just changes it I, to, more, to Dwarak. I'm such an idiot. I'm just like, why don't you just plug in two keyboards? Yeah, yeah. I'm the biggest idiot in the world. <laughs> if it's a hard, <laughs> if it were a hardware, I know, right? Yeah, it's if it, not. I if know. They yeah. do some. I think somebody produces a, a hardware Dwarak keyboard, in which case you could plug in okay. two keyboards, but. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not going to carry an extra keyboard just to be able to. I, I know the code keyboards have a dip switch on there. So if you unplug it, flip the dip switch and plug it back in, you can put it in Dvorak mode. Sweet. And of course, oh. if you go to any conference, you'll always find a corner with, you know, seven or eight nerds who just hacked their own keyboard. So maybe that's the solution. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm surprised you're not talking about your keyboard, Carl. Or is that like a secret tip or something? No, no. So uh, I recently switched keyboards. For years, I have had a, a wonderful Logitech keyboard. It's a very shallow key throw um, and it's illuminated. So I wanted to try out going to a mechanical keyboard. So I actually bought this. 
little tester kit. It's got all the different kinds of mechanical keys. And I use that to see if I would like a mechanical keyboard. And based upon actually trying this out, and I spent a couple of weeks with this, just kind of in my off time, just pressing it, making sure they all felt right. Um, I decided that the Cherry MX Reds were the keyboard uh, keys that I wanted. So then I bought a uh, keyboard, uh, not only mechanical and backlit, but that I can program the backlit per key. So I have my keyboard right now, it has MS Dev Show colors, it's red and, and blue and white. And then not only that, but occasionally a little ripple in those colors will happen on the keyboard too. So it's totally awesome and cool. It's the Corsair K65, if anybody's interested. Yeah. So your wife is like, why are you in the dark again? Because of the keyboard. It's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how much was that, Carl? Uh, it was $120 at Best Buy. Okay. I don't get, so, so what, I, like I've, I, I, I guess I don't know what I'm missing. Am I missing something? Um, only those things, you know, only if it's important to you. I, I need to have an illuminated keyboard. It doesn't have to be color. Oh yeah. No, I'm thinking like the, the whole mechanical keyboard thing. Like I, so, I literally so don't me, know what I'm missing. So for me, the biggest thing is I want something that's durable. Granted, my Logitech keyboard lasted me four years, but yeah. it, you know, when, you know, I don't want to be replacing my hardware all the time, especially something like a keyboard that I'm banging on all the time. And the mechanical keys are, are more durable. They're okay. rated about 10 times longer or 10 times more key presses than uh, the kind of plastic dome caps. So you're basically okay. set for the next 40 years. That's what I'm hoping. Nice. Yeah, you better keep using that, Carl. Yeah, the problem I have, I, you know, I work from home, but I occasionally do go into my office at work and... It's funny because like, um, you know, I relocated and I don't know, they were just kind of, I had to, they were stingy with what they gave me is kind of the short version, which is funny, <laughs> but I'm like, can you give me a keyboard? They're like, you know, can, does it have to be anything special? I'm like, no, whatever. And they gave me like literally like the stock Dell keyboard. <laughs> yeah. The Dell with no frame on it. And yeah, the, that, you know, of course is like, um, I, I think it's even like a generation behind. I mean, it's, it's yeah, like, it's uh, like $8 circa pay for it. Yeah. That's like circa 2005. And I actually don't care. Like the only thing I miss on it actually is the volume keys. Like I didn't realize how that's the only thing that I have a habit of hitting is I change the volume through those volume keys, but I never used any other special keys or anything. But other than that, like I actually really don't care what I'm typing on. It's never, never been something I needed to fix. So, uh, but I'll try out your keyboard and then, uh, well, somehow, uh, you'll have to bring it out here or something. What I can do is I can send you this, uh, tester. Well, you'll uh, be, just, you'll be here in two months, right? So yeah. So I'll be out bring there. I'll you. bring this with me and I'll give it to you. And then you can okay. try the different keys out for yourself. Cause they, uh, this has six, six different kinds of mechanical keys and they're all quite a bit different. Okay, cool. Okay. Katrina, one last thing. What is exorcism? And, and when, when I first I think Carl is the one that typed this in and, and, and I, I'm like, it's underlined, it's spelled wrong. So I, I changed it and I'm like, wait a second, was it actually correct? So, uh, it is actually spelled, it. yeah, it's actually supposed to be spelled E X E R C I S M. So what is that? So that's a play on exercise. Yeah. And it's a programming platform for practicing, uh, new programming languages or new old programming languages are also quite welcome. Um, the, the basic idea is that as a programmer, every year or two or three, we get out on a project and we need to learn a new pro programming language. And there's, it's kind of painful because in the language where you're fluent, you don't really have to think about the basics of what does a loop mm -hmm. look like? Where do the braces go? Um, how, do, which, you know, what, 
do the standard library method calls look like for strings? And so it, it always feels so awkward and it's so easy to feel stupid and I don't know how to program anymore. I'm better than this. Why am I putting my tail yeah, through this? I'm always thinking like, I'll go into language. that doesn't have classes or something. And I'll be like, how do I create a class? Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like searching that yeah. and I'm like, whoa. And it's so frustrating. So exorcism takes the, the, the idea that you really only need to get fluent in the, the syntax and idioms and standard library calls of a language to get past this feeling of having your hands tied behind your back as you're trying Mm -hmm. to to program. And so it's a bunch of little exercises that are completely trivial just to get you um, comfortable in a language so that you can free up all that working memory to spend solving real problems. Okay. Very cool. So how, how do I actually use this thing? It's a, it, <laughs> it kind of grew organically as one says. So it's, it's a bit of a mess. Um, okay. <laughs> you, you download a binary, you can, it's all open source. So, okay. uh, there's nothing nefarious. <laughs> the executable is not going to do things <laughs> to your machine. It's a, it's a binary written in Go. So it's cross compiled for all the different platforms. And you use this to pull down an exercise. You pick a language. There are, I think 33 languages right now. So um, C sharp, F sharp. um, I think we have a VB.net in the works, maybe. Anyway, a bunch of different languages, (laughs) Haskell, Elixir, some of the new ones, Rust, Go. Um, And you you use the command line uh, client to pull down whatever the next exercise is in the language that you picked. And then you work in your local environment, in your text editor or IDE or whatever, you run the tests. Oh, right. So every exercise consists of a readme and a test suite. The test suite okay. just, it, it makes it easy to, to progress through the exercise and figure out when you're done. And then you use the command line tool to submit your solution to the website where other people who have also done that exercise can take a look at what, how you solved it, give you suggestions or feedback. And you can go and browse all the other solutions to see what other ways you can solve the same problem. Okay. That sounds really cool. I'll have to check that out. Maybe, maybe I'll learn go now. Yeah. Or F sharp. The F sharp track is amazing. There are like a hundred, a oh, really? hundred exercises and um, nice. it's really well maintained. Yeah. Okay. Well, and the cool thing about F sharp is like it's.net, right? Yeah. So we talked to, uh, was it Frank Krueger? And, uh, you know, he was, he wrote, uh, that whole continuous app. I don't know if you've seen that, but he wrote that entire app in F sharp. Uh, and there was some pain around that, but like, that's just so cool because it's, you know, it's just net at the end of the day. So I can, if you're like a C sharp person, you can, you can use some F sharp and it's not like you're going into a completely different world. Like I, you know, I know nothing about the world of go. There's probably like some really interesting things that are completely different, but, uh, but at the same time, I should probably learn go because I'll probably pick up, you know, some, some paradigm shifting ideas that I can bring back. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting to go into a whole new, not just a whole new language paradigm, but a whole new environment and community. Cause it turns out, I don't know. People talk about the the open source community or whatever, and it's really just yeah. a bunch of different, slightly overlapping bubbles. And it's always really neat to yeah. meet people from other parts of the other parts of the world. Very cool. Okay, so we can move on here. So we have a couple more things to cover. Azure pick of the week, real quick, is announcing the general availability of storage, service, encryption for data at rest. So this 
Azure feature. Uh, people have been asking that for this for a while, but whenever you store data on Azure, um, while the data, obviously while it was in transit, it was always encrypted uh, via you know TLS, uh, HTTPS, uh, but now uh, you can turn on data uh, encryption. So while those blobs are sitting there, you can encrypt them. Previously, you could encrypt them using the client library, but now it's also uh, just you know completely transparently handled for you on the cloud side, which is very cool. Carl, what do you have for the dev tips of the week? Yes, I have two dev tips this week. The first one is a website, oshitget.com. <laughs> Say that 10 times fast. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's really cool about this is uh, not everybody is very, uh, always very fluent in uh, Git. And occasionally you'll get yourself into some sort of corner like, oh, I did something wrong, hence the name of the website. And yeah. this will tell you, uh, based upon what went wrong, what you need to do to correct it or get back to where you should be. Uh, like I need to change the message on my last commit or I accidentally committed uh, to something to master that should have been on a new branch. It tells you how to get out of that scenario. So those are all things that are very useful. And uh, I know I definitely learned a few things from it. Yeah, this is really cool. <laughs> I'm going to be using this. Yes. Okay, what's your other one? The other one is uh, something that I wrote that I put on GitHub. Uh, we always try to make sure that all the tools that we use for the show are open source. And uh, it, this uh, program itself isn't very hard or complicated, but I wanted to bring it up because it's a Windows service. And uh, we had a, a unique uh, thing that happened is uh, services generally keep themselves alive and they'll eventually stop if if it detects that the code's not running. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that I was using was a file system watcher, which you set up and just kind of let go. And yep. when things need to happen, they'll happen. However, if you put that in a Windows service, it'll immediately stop the service. Yeah, your main execution thread. So I had to uh, uh, provide a pattern in order to keep that Windows service open and going until you decide to stop that. So if you're working on a Windows service and you need that pattern, uh, there's a really great example on my GitHub page. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Okay, very cool. Uh, oh, what do you got here, Katrina? What'd you just send me? Oh, uh, Is there something you want to talk about? Just very briefly. Um, for the past yeah, three ahead. years, since we've been talking so much about refactoring, for the past three years, Sandy Metz and I have been working on a refactoring and design book. Ooh. And the beta just came out like a few weeks ago. Okay. Um, this is the Ruby edition, so if you're comfortable reading uh, reading Ruby, um, it it's an interesting read. If the the main ideas are not language specific, so um, we're talking about doing other other versions in other languages. But in the in the meantime, it's a uh, it's a lot of fun. Okay, yeah, we'll definitely get a copy of this. So this okay. is called Ninety Nine Bottles of Oop: A Practical Guide to Object Oriented Design. Yeah, so we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Very cool. Well, that was very timely. Uh, okay, so we're done with the dev tips of the week. So Katrina, we play a game on this show. I, what I need you to do is I need you to pick a number between one and four inclusive and let me know what it is. Three. Three. Let's find a card where three was not taken. Okay, here we go. Ha. Well, t I, I think I know the answer and I think it would be the same on almost every guess, but you might surprise me. Would you rather spend the rest of your life in a submarine or in a spaceship? Spaceship. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i'm not sure if we ever had a guest that would say submarine i don't know what do you think carl you think anybody would any of our guests would say submarine uh no uh but that reminds me there was a what was that sci-fi show in the uh sequest in, in the 90s yeah 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 and then they, weren't they like on, on season two was like on another planet or something <laughs> and i'm like what okay this, anyway so carl. is this a question a reference to neil stevenson's seven eves 
Have you have you read that? It's it's in reference to a kids game. Oh, because <laughs> in that case, I highly recommend reading Seven Eves. There are both spaceships and submarines. Okay. I yeah, so speaking of which, now since we'll we'll just turn this into a whole topic. Uh <laughs> Futurama, which I've seen like eight times. I've seen every episode like eight times. There's this hilarious scene where they are going underwater. Have you seen this? I don't Carl, Katrina, uh, no. So they 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 you know it's it's their their spaceship, right? Which is like, you know, what they use in the whole show. So they're going underwater and it like, you know, the professors he he's all worried about this. And he's like, Oh, this is um uh, what is pressure measured in? Um, size? no, um, atmospheres. Yeah. Atmospheres. He goes, he goes, we're at five atmospheres of pressure. And, and, and somebody goes, well, how many atmospheres is the ship rated for? And he goes, well, it's a spaceship. So somewhere between zero and one, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that is just, that's so true. Right? Like it's, it's designed for pressure on the inside, not on the outside. So Anyway, that show it was so clever, man. If you you can watch it eight times and you will still pick out like little you know jokes or nuggets like that, and you know they go to the edge of space. I think I mentioned on the show before. You know they look, they're like they're waving to their like parallel selves, and he goes, "Is there an infinite number of universes?" And they go, "Nope, just the two. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay, Carl, pick a number between one and four. I'll take two. Two. Would you rather be a boy named Muffin or a girl named Arnold Arnold Jasper? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I guess I wouldn't mind being this called a, Muffin. This is a loaded question, man. <laughs> I wouldn't mind being called Muffin, I guess. Okay. Okay, Muffin. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Carl's new nickname is now Muffin. I'm sorry, Carl. Uh, okay, perfect. So, Katrina, it uh, looks like Carl's been uh, collecting links uh, to all of your stuff. But um, just for the audio version, where where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at Katrinks, and I'm at Katrinks.com. And GitHub okay. is also Katrinks. Basically, that's okay. Me. Just just search for that yeah. and it'll just be you. Awesome. Very cool. Well, um, okay. What else we got here? Carl, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And you can find me at YTechie.com or at Twitter.com slash YTechie. So Katrina, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was awesome stuff. This was and great. Thanks so much yeah, for inviting me. Yeah, thank you. And anytime you want to come on and talk about any of your topics, because they are, we can make a show out of any of those, just let us know because super awesome stuff. Keep up the great work. Thanks so much.